Hi, my name is Paula, and I'm a going to be a second year law student at the University of Michigan Law School, and I'm joined today by Professor Scott Shapiro. He used to be a professor here at the University of Michigan, uh, but he's currently a professor of law and professor of philosophy at Yale Law School. Thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Paula, and go blue. Um, So today we're going to be largely focusing on two pieces of work from you, your book, The Internationalist, that was written with Professor Hathaway, who is also a professor of international law at Yale Law School, and your recent article with her that was in Lawfare and Just Security, Putin Can't Destroy the International Order by Himself. So Scott, why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about what the book is about and the main arguments in it? Yeah, sure. So um the book which is called the internationalist how a radical plan to outlaw war remade the world which i wrote with my um colleague ona hathaway is an attempt to well in 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 the first instance it's a an examination of the 1928 paris peace pact also known as the kelly brand pact which quite incredibly um, sought, well, in fact, did outlaw war, uh, outlaw war. Um, and at the time, it was the most signed treaty in the history of the world up until that point, virtually every state in the world signed it. And so in the, in, in, at one level, the book is in the, is a, is an examination of how that came to be, but more Importantly, I think it's a kind of a 400-year survey of the international community's attempt to try to figure out how will it police itself? What do states do when they've been harmed by another state? And yet there's no court in which to appeal to. There's no Supreme Court of the world. There's no, uh, I mean, the United Nations General Assembly is not a legislature. It's certainly not a legislature for the world. So what do you do? So up until 1928, the answer to that, to this was war. That is, rather than being a breakdown of the international system, war was the international system. War was a legitimate way in which states resolved their disputes precisely because there was no court for them to go to. And one of the things that we try to point out in the book is that not only is, has the status of war, legal status of war changed uh, up until, basically from the beginning of the history of the world up until 1928, but in a historical sense, the kind of barbarity of war as a way of resolving disputes is really new. It's so new that it's still in living memory, wars fought outside of that, like World War I and World War II being an example of a war fought over what the uh, what war was going to be. Mm-hmm. What would be the rules for of the international system? And so one of the things we wanted to show was that the rules have changed. And it wasn't just that 
one rule changed, but the entire system had changed because the main rule, the legality of war, had flipped. And that, that necessitated that many other rules flip as well. So as be whereas before conquest was legal because it was the way in which you enforced your rights, conquest became invalid because you're not allowed to enforce your rights through unilateral exercises of force. By pointing out that the rules have changed, we wanted to emphasize that the rules can change back again. That is, if war used to be the legitimate way in which states resolve their disputes, the worry is that it can flip back to that. And that's what we were warning at the end of the book. Um, so I had read your book and then saw your article in February following the invasion into Ukraine. And you note at the beginning of the article that there were many commentating that the dams are breaking and the modern international legal order is collapsing. And it mimics a part in the beginning of your book, which you recognize, is that many saw the Paris Peace Pact and mocked it because we do still, in fact, have war. And so can you explain your intent in writing the article as a response to those commentators or even someone yeah. like me who's reading the book in the reality that we live in today? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things um, I guess I wanted to um, uh, is a very, it is a very strange feature of international law that people people take great glee in its violation you know that is like if it gets violated people jump up and down aha see the treaty didn't make any difference so aha so you know war crimes you know uh, it, it, you know is only the victor's justice and all this stuff and I, it's 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 a strange thing because we don't hold domestic law to this standard, I mean, like, I mean, we do say, um, you know, we do say, you know, the system feels like it's falling apart when there's acts of illegality, but we don't really mean it in the same way that critics of international law mean it. So there's just like multiple mass shootings all over the all over the country, multiple multiple mass shootings per day. And nobody's jumping up and down and saying, oh, you see, the police don't make a difference. I mean, look at Ovaldi. Ovaldi, you know, the police didn't do anything. So like having police don't matter. It doesn't matter because they're not going to do anything. Uh, they're not going to do anything. Um, of course, we don't think that. So one of the things I, Ona and I were trying to do is kind of like push back and say, like, well, wait, what, what's the weird double standard here? Um, of course, any kind of legal system will be challenged. That is what, that's what the law expects. And so one of the things that we tried to, uh, the point we tried to make up, set out in that Just Security article was that the law always assumes that its rules are gonna be broken and it has rules for that. And it typically assumes that those rules for breaking the rules are themselves gonna be broken. And so it's not so the, when there is, in fact, a giant violation of the rules like in Russia brazenly invading Ukraine, the question then becomes, well, how are people responding to it? Do they see it as a violation? Do they see it as a grievous violation? Do they see it as a grievous violation that requires uh, either permits 
or maybe even requires help from third parties from states who believe that the stability um, of the international order and non-aggression should be the, um, the prevailing norms. So that's what we were pushing. And in fact, I think the response that you've seen is one that has strongly reinforced the norm against aggression um, um, by the international community, although I hasten to add not the entire international community. Yeah, and you have a quote in there kind of anticipating this and you say, James Madison famously observed, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, kind of pointing to this is kind of expected and it would be weird not to expect that um, in, in, in any type of system. Um, yeah, I, I, in fact, I would say the following is that like a system in which a system in which everyone acted according to the rules, like the big worry would be that they're not acting according to the rules, they're just acting because it's in their interest to act that way. So in some sense, the fact that they're violating the rules kind of shows that there's something to it. Right. I know, I know that sounds perverse, but really in some sense, that is the, I think the, 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 uh, the alternative and valid way of looking at it. Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of paradoxes or ways of thinking that are counterintuitive in the book, and it starts out um, in the first part with kind of the paradox that was the foundation of the old world order, which is the might of the might is right principle. And can you explain kind of the paradox of that? Yeah. So the the the, the weird, the weird, the weird thing. So let me. Can I just back up for a quick second? So how did I even mm -hmm. get into this project? I got into this project because I had finished this other book called Legality. And in there, I was really trying to understand the way law worked. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is like, what would a legal system look like if there was a right of self-help? And generally, we don't have rights of self-help. I mean, we have very limited rights of self-help. Like, I can maybe throw you out of my house. Um, but like, I can't really, like, if you're, if you're by my car, I can't really shove you. Um, I got to go to the police or if you owe me money, I can't just go and take it. I have to go to court. But what would a legal system look like in which individuals really did have the right of self-help? It turns out that war and international law turned out to be exactly like that. Now, here is in some sense the idea. The idea was somebody harmed you. If you're an individual, you go to court. But if you're a state and you claim sovereignty and you claim that nobody has authority over you, what you do is you go to war because you're exercising your natural right to protect yourself and those who have given you that right through the social contract. That was basically the early modern um, conception of of war. So if somebody wronged you, you can go out and right that wrong, use self-help. Now the problem with that and what becomes paradoxical is that both sides think that they're right. Mm. And because both sides think that they're right, one thinks that they're not engaging in aggression. The other side says they're engaging in aggression. One says you owe me 15,000 doubloons. The other one says, I don't owe you 15,000 doubloons. So like, how do, you how do you make the system work? Well, the only way you can make the system work 
in where you have global capitalism is you have to make sure that whoever takes the stuff under a claim of right gets to keep it. Why? Because if they don't get to keep it in the sense that they have legal title to it, the big problem would be they wouldn't be able to sell it to somebody else because they wouldn't be able to establish that they had the right, they had the just cause in the war, and therefore they grabbed the prize, they grabbed the booty in a lawful way, and so therefore they had the right to sell it. So it turns out that by giving everyone the right, the moral right and legal right, to right wrongs, you've created a situation where nobody can jump in and say, oh, actually, I think that you have the moral or legal calculus wrong. You're thinking about it the wrong way. What you seized is in fact not yours. If you did that, the entire global market would come to a halt, especially a global marketplace that depended on extraction of goods, and people and territory and, and occupation of territory in the colonial regions of the world um, where there were wars that were fought and they were claimed that they were just causes. But in fact, um, uh, in many instances, they were just manufactured. So essentially, because you have no one to adjudicate who is just, you have to enable everyone so that just actors themselves are able to act as well. That's perfect. That's a, you. You just. You just. You, you just um, uh, perfectly encapsulated my twenty-minute prolix no, no, explanation and great. one perfect line. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Um, so when I first read that, it initially seemed weird to think like that. I mean, surely I thought I make moral claims all the time, and I come to conclusions, and I can turn on the TV or read the newspaper and I can see a million pundits, you know, come to these types of conclusions. So I wonder when you were first starting the project, if that seemed like a weird way of thinking that there was no possible way to adjudicate this, or if that seemed appropriate given the context of the world. So, you know, it's so funny because the way it came about came about because of a very little known historical anomaly. Um, so in um, so the so-called father of international law, Hugo Grotius, 1583 to 1645, he wrote what is often considered like the Bible, you know, it's not really the Bible, but like the legal equivalent of the Bible for international mm -hmm. law, because, because um, um, uh, oh God, why, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking, um, De Yuri Beliak Pakis, Tre Libre, right, okay, right, right, so three, three books on the laws of, um, of war and peace, peace and war, uh, <laughs> I'm totally blanking. It's, uh, um, I trust uh, you on this one. So whatever you yeah, say, no, I'll go no. with it. Do Yuri, no, there's Do Yuri Pridei and Do Yuri Beliak Pakis, right? Belly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Do Yuri Beliak Pakis. Well, I mean, you know, it's been, um, I'm, you know, it's been a couple. It's been a little while since I've been out of that. So, but the thing is, is that um, Hugo Grotius, when he was 20 years old. He wrote a earlier version of this called De Ure Pridei on the law of, of, of prize and booty. And in it, it was the first time that he kind of encountered the question of war. And he said, well, you know, 
and he was he was hired by the Dutch East India Company mm-hmm. to to defend um, basically his cousin from having taken all um, all this money and and goods from a Portuguese ship. And what Grotius had said was, well, his cousin was acting with a just cause, but if he wasn't acting with a just cause, he'd have to give it back. That changes. So this was this was never published, but it was finished in 1608. And the book that I mentioned, the De Uri Belli Act Pacus, was 1625. So in in those years between being a 20-year-old and being a seasoned corporate attorney for the Dutch East India Company, his views changed on whether you need a just cause in order to have legal title to the things you seize. And it just struck me as like, why would he change his mind like that? And then it occurred to me, well, if you're running, if you're, if you're working for a global capitalist, colonialist, imperialist um, charter company, then you're gonna want you're gonna wanna reduce as much friction as you can from the global marketplace by reducing any questions over legal title. Mm-hmm. So that that's how that came about. I'm sorry, the long long winded way. So I wanted to explain why this very significant but almost always overlooked change. And the reason why it's overlooked is people don't read the earlier version right. of it. Um, yeah. No, no, I, I appreciate that. It's almost like a selfish reason because it's it's not for the reasons we expect. It's not this like an amazing oh, right. like, long-term oh, historical reason. It's for his job and who he's working for. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like um, uh, it's uh, I, I came away hating the guy, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, Grotius. I mean, he's considered you know like the Prince of Peace, and he's considered he's got these statues of uh, you know in 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 the Netherlands, and they have he's because. Um, um, painting his portraits are all over the International Court of Justice in, in The Hague, and guy was a warmonger. <laughs> so there's this shift in thinking that occurs, and it starts off with Sam and Levinson. And if you can explain who he is and kind of how he comes to form this new idea about outlawing war, which you explain in the book is like one of like incredibly radical. And it's interesting because he's just this corporate lawyer who comes up with this, and it's no one you would think of like coming up with yeah. this new miraculous idea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the last guy you'd expect. I mean, so what's really fascinating, and I I mean, have you taken bankruptcy yet, Paula? I have not. Okay. I would I I would recommend taking bankruptcy. It's extra I think it's extraordinarily interesting area of law. It's actually a really interesting idea, the the idea of giving people second chances. Um, I think it's actually a very um interesting area of law. But one of the things that you learn from bankruptcy is that the point of the rules is to make a bad situation better, which is mm-hmm. often, which is where the point of litigation is often to make a bad situation much, much worse. And bankruptcy people, what they do is they try to take the, you know, the bankrupt entity, they try to run it, they try to cut deals you know, will it take 40 cents on the dollar? Will it take 20 cents on the dollar? And kind of emerge, you know, with all its debts canceled um, and can start over again. And I think that that's very much what um, Sam Levinson was thinking. That is, all, what he saw was like war as litigation. War where you just go out and you try to pummel the other side, the guy um, to death, um, literally to death. 
Um, and so, and he also had two army age um, uh, children. sons. Yeah. Yeah, children, yeah. And he, um, he was just completely freaked out when the stock market closed for the first time in, uh, for the third time ever um, at the beginning of World War One, And he just thought, what an idiotic way to run the world. And he started this um, movement called the Outlawry of War Movement or the Committee for the Outlawry of War. And he, he was um, a Chicago lawyer and he was very connected and he made, and he, it's funny actually, the, the, the uh, University of Michigan comes up here is because, yes. um, um, because um, it turns out that John Dewey was teaching at University of Michigan in the philosophy department and then the his um, Salmon's wife was friends of what would then become mi not Mrs. John Dewey, but John Dewey's partner. Mm -hmm. um, and and so they were law. So so they were friends. That is John Dewey and Salmon Levinson. And Dewey was a great, well, probably one, uh, probably the greatest American philosopher. Um, certainly the first half of the 20th century. And so I think he was somebody who was not only enormously influential um, uh, on Salmon's thinking, but also he had connections um, in the popular press, in the intellectual press, politically. Uh, he himself was um, uh, had, had turned anti-war um, after seeing what happened in World War I. Um, and um, and um, they together, but mainly through Sam and Levinson's injection of a lot of capital. Um, he spent a lot of his own money um, putting together a, um, a global social movement to get, the, to get this done. Um, he's not the only one involved in it. He has a nemesis um, in, in, the, in, the, um, in the name of James Shotwell, who um, was a philosophy, a history professor at Columbia. Um, and um, both of them were quite influential in pushing the idea of a global ban to World War. And which would eventually become the Paris Peace Pact. And right. what's so like wonderful about the book is there's the pact itself, but you delve into the creation of the idea of outlawing war. And I, I haven't seen this type of analysis before, but what's incredible is like their thought process contemplated the same ideas that today's critics contemplate. I see a lot of critics think that their, you know, criticism towards international law is something new. But for example, you know, people talk about the lack of enforcement in the international um, order, and they, you know, say, why don't we use war or this type of force? But this idea actually came across many people's minds and Levinson, and they actually thought that this was impossible to have because it would thrust you back into the old world order. Can you explain that thought process? Yes. Yeah, so, 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 I mean, I think you're 100% right when you say that the criticisms you hear now are like very old. Right. And a hundred years yeah, old almost. Yeah, right, right, right. Right. hundred years old. And the reason why they're only a hundred years old, but not like a hundred and fifty years old, was because the question didn't arise before because there was an enforcement mechanism, mm -hmm. namely war. So nobody was bringing it up because they thought that there was a way to do it. And the great achievement of 1928, but then as we try to show that 1928 was just the beginning of a transformation 
which takes place over the course of first the um, the let's see, 12, 17 years um, between 1928 and 1945. Um, so there would have been a lot of consolidation about what kinds of rules would exist in a world in which war was illegal except as a matter of self-defense. And then you have the creation of the United Nations, which has the Kellogg-Briand Pact at its center. Um, and the, the idea there was um, we are no longer going to use war as a way to enforce mm -hmm. the law. So I would say that the great, like the fundamental rule of international law is you're not allowed to enforce international law with force. Right. Like that. And so when that's the whole say, point. Not, right, right. When people say we're not doing anything, I said, yes, that was the great achievement. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so one of the things you see this and you see this in other ways too, in ways that people don't recognize. So um, Samantha uh, Power, who um, uh, wrote um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book *Prom from Hell* about the problem of genocide in the 20th century, which is in fact the problem from hell. is It's hard to think of th something that's worse than genocide. Um, but um, whereas she points out that this is the big problem of the 20th century, the point that Ona and I were trying to make was, no, this is the great achievement of mm -hmm. the 20th century, not the creation of, not, not genocide, obviously, that there's so much genocide, but that um, war is kind of unthinkable for things that a couple of years ago, a couple of decades ago was completely thinkable. The way I point out, point this out is like, so Trump's crazy. Like we all, you know, there was like nothing that the guy could say that would surprise us, right? Mm -hmm. But he never said that if Mexico doesn't pay for the war, the wall, we're going to war. He never said that. It was too crazy even for him except that that would have been the argument that we would have used a hundred years ago. Right. And it's what's interesting too, is you would talk about the League of Nations and the criticism that Levinson and many others had was even the League of Nations, which was supposed to solve this problem, had actually propped up the old world order by enabling within the system war to be used as, after a certain period of time. Like the League of Nations who had similar members within the pact were literally contradictory and could not be enforced at the same time because they required a nation to both go at war at the same time and to refrain from going to war. Absolutely. One of the things that first struck us as so surprising was that the outlawists were against the League of Nations. And we're like, what? Because we always thought that, like, you know, the way you taught it is like there was the League of Nations. It depends on where you went to school, I suppose. But one of the Maybe ways. Maybe the high that, school version of the League of Nations. No, no, no. But it depends on what kind of high school you went to. One, <laughs> the kind, one kind of high school, which is the kind of I got, was, you know, the big issue here um, is um, uh, we want to we want a global organization to prevent another world war. And the United States were so selfish. They only wanted to think about themselves. They only want to make money. And so therefore they um, didn't ratify the Versailles Treaty and didn't join the League of Nations, therefore dooming the world to another world war, which would come about in 1939. Um, that, I think that that's not 100% accurate. 
because um, I think there were a lot of people who were quite understandably um, kind of sick of centuries of seeing these idiotic wars between dynastic um, uh, families um, in Europe, you know, these duchies and these uh, bishoprics going to war, they just wanted out of it. Um, but there were other people who just thought that the League of Nations was itself an old world institution because it did not stop war. All it did was said that if you're gonna go to war, you gotta first go to the League um, and there were various things you had to do. And basically, if you lost the dispute, you had to wait six months before you went to war. Mm -hmm. So people were like, oh, wait, so you're allowed to go to war. But the Kelly Brand Pact says you're not allowed to go to war. And so what happened was the United States didn't sign one that led it to sign the other. But they were signing a thing that people from the League of Nations also had signed. And then when the question arose in 1931, when Japan invaded Manchuria, and which was a blatant violation of the of the Paris Peace Pact, nobody knew what to do because, like, they had been committed to two contradictory sets of norms, mm -hmm. um, and that's why I said it would. This is the beginning of a process. It was the beginning of a process of trying to figure out how are we going to enforce the law. Um, uh, uh, against war if we're not going to use war. Um, and so the development of the pact is obviously just extremely aware of these criticisms. And even Levinson noted that war still might occur. I mean, this is the person who had come up with the idea. And I want to circle back to your article, like in kind of touch on what you said at the beginning and you write, while domestic law does a good job at policing legal violations, it is not foolproof. The legal institutions don't naively assume that we will obey its demands. And do you have an idea as to why, I mean, you mentioned there is a difference, but you have an idea as to why we don't apply that same type of thinking to international law. Surely we don't have that type of thinking for domestic law, but is there a reason maybe as a philosopher that you can see the gap in the way that we think about those things? Well, I, yeah, that's a great, you know, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's such a good question. One of the things that I, if you, if, one of the things um, 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 is unusual when you think about the history of philosophy. If you read Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, um, Dewey, you know, you really get this idea that um, you have to theorize war. You have to, yeah, you, you, you have to say something about it. And, you know, of course, this becomes the foundation for somebody like Hobbes's theory of the domestic state is in it. It's a, it's a withdrawing from the state of nature, which it characterizes the international sphere. I think what happened was that in the 20th century, not only did people stop going to war as a way of enforcing rights, but the state itself, the domestic state became so much more technologically sophisticated at providing services and enforcing the law. I mean, if you think mm -hmm. of just in terms of homicide rates, homicide rates have you know, really fallen dramatically over the course of just the last century. Um, it seemed like a really, really good um, um, system 
you know, of course, and then people will say, well, but like it hides all this uh, oppression and systemic racism and all that stuff. Yes, but it also does kind of work. Um, whereas in, 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 with international law, if you pull away the very thing that used to work or not, I don't know if it works so well, but it was very visible. And then you develop these things over time and slowly so that they fall below the radar. I think people are, um, I will tend to overlook them. And that's how, this is how Owen and I started with the book. We started noticing that actually international law did have these enforcement mechanisms, which we came to call outcasting. And the mm-hmm. idea is that instead of doing something to you, we just refuse to do something with you. Like we withdraw our cooperation from you um, and therefore you, get, you don't get the benefits of being in our group. Now it turns out that outcasting is all over international law. And um, I don't know if you saw it, the, the news reported the first, I think NASA, NASA shot from space that the, um, that the ozone layer is, is um, is um, is mending itself, and that's because of the Montreal Protocols of um, uh, um, uh, of international law, which used a very clever outcasting scheme to uh, reduce the level of chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere. So we started seeing these mechanisms all over the place, and then we just thought, well, like when did this thing start? It must have started like at the beginning of history, because like this has to be the only way in which international law is enforced. And then we thought, oh no, actually outcasting used to be illegal, but war was legal and that flipped. And so I think that people just don't know what to look for. Um, So on the one hand, you have the domestic state, which is really, it's in our face all the time. And it really does provide services. Um, uh, It is pretty efficient or, you know, there are many states that are failed, obviously, um, and not efficient, but, um, you know, very well-developed countries like the United States, um, you know, they, they, they work really well. And international law has been developing these things under cover, uh, like under a quiet cover. And I think it's the, one of the things that Ona and I were trying to do is we were trying to have people see that there were more possibilities here and that have more respect for a system that really does work reasonably well given the circumstances. It's interesting that you bring that up because when I was reading the book, the concept of sanctions comes up quite early on. And in the modern era, we think just sanctions. Like that's the, why aren't we doing more? And yet a hundred years ago, sanctions would be something that would lead to war. But now we think of it as something that prevents war. And I had not known that. I mean, even myself, I just thought that sanctions were something that were a normal part of preventing war when in fact it was quite the opposite, which is strange to think about. Yeah, it's crazy. We, I, I mean, the project started, we thought that Grotius would be the one that proposed um, um, uh, economic sanctions because he's the Prince of Peace. And I started reading and I'm thinking, this guy's a freaking monster. Because um, <laughs> he's like, the answer is war. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so that's what led to like, we, we like had to like look at everything backwards. Um, and it right. turned out to be, at least for us, illuminating or hope, so, I hope it was. And that was kind of where, when I first reached out, I kind of had the idea for this interview because I'd noticed that your view of breaches is different than most people. You view breaches 
in light of the, our response to them, whereas other people view breaches as a bug. And this is a consistent thing that I can see in the book is this counterintuitive way of thinking. And I would love for you to kind of explain how that's a way of looking at the law in general, but also like you as a legal philosopher, how you examine the law with that lens. Well, in some sense, it's like the, it's the thing you kind of fight against in legal philosophy, but it's the first thing that comes up. So when you ask somebody like, what do you think is the essence of law, the nature of law, they'll all say the same thing because it's a very natural thing to say, which is power. Mm -hmm. um, and when you break the law, some, yeah, one day, one day I was with my daughter when she was five years old and I was laying with her having her go to sleep and then she obviously want to talk and I obviously did not want to talk I wanted to leave <laughs> um and so she would so she she would um she would often say so what did you do today which meant what did, what did you have for lunch um and I said well instead of telling her what I had for lunch I said what I did I said I wrote a book I've been writing a book on what is law and she goes oh but what did you have for lunch I said well do you know what law is she goes no what is law and I said and I noticed what came out of my mouth. It was just like a very crude picture, which is that, well, like there are these things that you're not allowed to do. And if you do them, you get a timeout. Um, and um, and like, you don't want to get a timeout. So that's why you don't do it. And that's like what the law is, that like the police that, so like, even when I'm explaining this to my daughter, I'm, I'm a legal philosopher and I know that this is not a good explanation of the law, but. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, I'm going to explain it from the perspective of what are the reactions to violating it. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the differences is with morality is that if you violate morality, you just did something wrong, but not nothing necessarily happens to you. Um, and so um, I think in some way, as a legal philosopher, we, we try to get people away from thinking always about how the law will respond to your breaking the law. But it, in this case, it was like they were making a mistake at the very beginning. It wasn't even a sophisticated mistake. It was like a basic mistake, like not even knowing how the law works. Right. So, that, so that's why, so it, it really was like shooting fish in a barrel. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is Dewey brings this up with his conversation with Levinson, I, I, if I recall correctly, where he says, let's not talk about the criminal aspect of this because it will deter people away from the idea, thinking about the consequences. And you refer to HLA Hart in your article and note that the main function of law is to guide conduct. And Dewey talks about when they're thinking about how are we going to implement this with Levinson, that the flexibility of human nature and how we're shaped by our institution. It's almost the opposite side. It's thinking not about the consequences, but shaping the initial behavior that comes before that. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things that, um, um, that gets kind of um, lost in a lot of debates um, mm -hmm. over war and geopolitics is real, are really in some way debates about human nature. Mm -hmm. That is like, what do you think our capacities are? So one view about human nature is that like, basically we're, we're not great. Um, we, have, we have the ability to be altruistic, but we're, it's very limited. We break the rules a lot. Um, 
capitalism makes sense for us because we're kind of <laughs> we're a bit base um, <laughs> um, uh, as primates, um, and um, and uh, we should be we should celebrate whenever human beings get anything right. Now, there's another way of thinking about things where you think, well, no, human beings have this huge potential. It's just that society, especially capitalist society, is warping us so as to actually act selfishly when we are intrinsically neither selfish nor not selfish, or maybe we're actually quite altruistic. And that it's that the social structure is changing us, is teaching us, is warping us. Um, and I think um, if you think that, then you think that the human pot potential for peace in the world is much greater than um, the Hobbesian would think, um, uh, who thinks that human nature is quite limited. John Dewey believed firmly in the plasticity of human nature. And that was one of the reasons why um, he was so into the theory of education, why there's so, there are John Dewey schools all over the country, because he thought that education would be the way in which we could change hearts and minds so that people would not be base and bellicose and barbaric. One of the things he pointed out, he used a very simple example, that education he's like just teach people like geography like where china is you know like like lots of lots of times people don't understand disputes because they don't know where the country is they don't know what they're kind of facing and so one of the things that i think um separates um dewey from me is i kind of feel like we're um we're not great human beings are not great um mm. and that i'm amazed whenever anything works out <laughs> um i'm just incredibly amazed so the fact that the Calibran pact worked as well as it did is like an absolutely amazing thing to me now i think if you have greater expectations about human nature and the ability to like make a better world um, not a better world i believe we can make a better world i wouldn't be doing what i was doing if i didn't think we could make a better world but we could make a much better world if you think that then um you're gonna be very disappointed and you're not, you're gonna be very disappointed in the world and you're gonna be disappointed at the achievements that we point out in the book because you mm -hmm. think things could look at all the suffering you're you're right. ignoring and i'm like thinking I can't believe that any suffering was ever um, um, uh, um, obviated. It's just amazing to me. Um, I want to, this connects to the one of the first points you made at the beginning, and I kind of want to circle back on this and kind of finish on this note. You see this almost sudden and remarkable development in the book of just outlawing war. I mean, it comes out of almost nowhere. And, you know, one can think of that outside the context of moving from the old world order to the new world order. You said we could even move back. And I wonder, to this point of human nature, considering these are both possibilities, I mean, you even mentioned this at the end of your article, um, that there's the possibility that Putin's actions will either weaken or strengthen the world order. I wonder, do you find this to be reassuring or worrying to end up on this note? I mean... We'll see which way it goes. 
Yeah, no, I know. That's a great question. I mean, I we originally meant it as reassuring, but, um, you know, it really is hard to imagine what the next, I, I mean, forget, like, it's hard enough to imagine what the next week's going to be like, but like, like what's it going to be like in two years? I mean, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, how long is this war between Russia and Ukraine going to last? And like, what kinds of compromises will the West make and, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, the non-aligned countries make? And, you know, there's been this sea change in the desire of capitalist entities to deal with Russia, um, for sort of a much harder place, much uh, more vulnerable place to do business. Um, but number two, like consumers don't seem to wanna um, withdraw from products that associate themselves with Russia. What's Russia gonna be like if it, if as a nuclear power, if it's um, canceled in the way that it's in fact being canceled, it's hard to know what it's gonna look like. That is like, this may be really, really good enforcement, which may make the world much, much weaker, or it may be a really, you know, the West gave it the old college try, but there are limits to what um, uh, citizens of a democratic democratic societies, how long they'll um, suffer $5 a gallon gas. I mean, these are all very serious questions. I don't know what, how they're going to uh, work themselves out. Um, well, on that note, I want to thank you again for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and learn more about your work. Um, if you haven't read Scott's book, you should go get it and read his uh, article in Just Security and Lawfare. Thank you.